share with you today, and that is we have neighborhood VBSs coming up. So uh, if you attend here regularly, you might be familiar with what I'm talking about, uh, but in case you are not, uh, we have a VBS, Vacation Bible School, that happens here at our church, Uh, and so that happened a little while ago, and it was great. These VBSs are happening out in the community, right? They're happening in somebody's backyard, uh, and the idea there is to try and really uh, bring in people to this VBS who might not already know Jesus, right? They just live in the same neighborhood as one of our church members, uh, and we want to give them an opportunity to come to a VBS to hear about Jesus uh, and be pointed to him. Um, So a couple things about that. First, uh, we want to invite you to pray for these neighborhood VBSs. We want to ask you to pray for the host families, that they be making meaningful connections with people in their neighborhood. Uh, We want to ask you to pray for the attenders, uh, that they would hear about Jesus and that they would be connected with him. And then we also want to ask you to pray for our youth. Our youth will be leading uh, these neighborhood Bible studies, and so uh, pray that the Lord would speak through them and use them, and that that would be a growing experience for them as well. So number one, we would ask you to pray for these. Number two, if you live in one of these communities, uh, so we've got the Montgomery's and Monroe Falls, uh, we got the Hodges by Northampton Road, the Fabers in Cuyahoga Falls, the Rambas in Stowe, and the Coons in Streetsboro, we would invite you to have your kids come to this backyard VBS with the intention of being a light with the intention of pointing other kids to Jesus, uh, showing love to them, and, uh, you know, being active participants, being a good example, things like that. And so if you would like to sign your children up, you live in one of those communities and you want to sign up, we would have you go to vlchurch.com. There's a banner there that talks about the backyard VBSs, and you can get connected in that way. All right, our next uh, part of, of service is where we worship through our giving. Um, So we would invite you to give by text. You can give online using our website, or you can give as you exit the sanctuary today. Thank you for supporting, excuse me, thank you for supporting God's work uh, through our ministry. And now we are going to transition to the part of our service where we worship through singing. So I want to invite you to go ahead and stand uh, and join me in prayer. Lord, you gave us a name. Uh, to refer to you by. Sometimes we say it Yahweh, sometimes we say it Jehovah, but it's a, it's a holy name. And we come here today to worship you, to worship your name, to honor who you are and what you have done. God, we know that you are our creator, you are our sustainer, you are our savior, you are our everything. And so as we come here today, Lord, we come to worship you and give you the honor that you are due. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. We're here to worship the Lord today. Let's call upon his name now. Worship him in this place. He shames every idol. Our rival, he goes by the name of Jehovah. Jehovah, he speaks into nothing, and darkness goes running. He goes by. 
bow your heads this morning. We've sang some songs today that intensely describe God's faithfulness and his love to his people when they call his name. So let's pray on to him this morning. God, you are a faithful God. You are a good God. You are the one who fights our battles. God, you are the one who meets every need. You provide it all. God, you are the one who heals us when we're sick. You're the one who brings us peace. As the last song said, you're the one who gives us forgiveness and repentance. We believe in these things, Lord, and so this morning, we pray them into our lives. God, this morning, I pray for those who need a physical healing in their body. Father, that you would move right now, that you would touch physical needs, raise people up, begin to heal them, touch them, Lord. I pray for people who are going through a struggle, a choice that they need to make, a battle, a fight. God, that you would make the way clear by your spirit. Somebody who's struggling with a choice that they need to make, would you bring clarity to that choice? God, somebody who has been anxious and toiling through fear for a long time, Lord, I pray you'd bring peace into their life today, Father God. And for the one, Lord, who's struggling in sin, who knows that the choices they've made are wrong and feels like the burden and the shame is weighing them down and they can't get out from under it, Lord, I pray for them this morning, Lord, that you would release them as they ask for forgiveness and repentance, Lord. That you would release them from the burden of sin. Because after all, that's what Jesus, you came to do on the cross to release us from the weight of sin and in turn cleanse us give us new life and eternal life with you so this morning God as we see you moving as we pray as we feel your movement as we pray our only response is love it can only be love and adoration for what you've done for us so this morning I pray our hearts would express that unto you and you would be pleased in this place with our love and gratitude for you. Amen. Sometimes I'm not I'll bless your name No matter what If just my voice Is all I've got Jesus, it's yours Oh, Jesus, it's yours Oh, let this be My sacrifice 
none in all the earth is quite like you, Lord. Too worthy of our praise. We bless you today. sins. I'll never find another love like you. You took the nails, Lord. You took the crown of thorns. I'll never find another love like you. You found me in my sin and raised me up again. your name. You alone are worthy, Lord. I pray that as we continue this service today, Lord, that you'd be in every aspect of it. And as we hear your word, Lord, our love would grow deeper and stronger for what you've given us, Lord. Would you be here now and bless us as we continue in worship. seated. All right. Hey, good. For, thank you, AJ. Good to have tech people around. Good morning. Children, you may be dismissed. My name is Bill Anderson. I am the missions director here at Victory Life Church, and I am one of the new elders, uh, and it is my privilege to introduce the speaker that we have uh, this morning. Before I do that, um, <clears throat> I do want to mention that many of you were praying for the missions team that went to Mexico. They're back, safe, a few stomach gurgles, but other than that, uh, things went very well. Um, they, the ministry was great. Uh, through hot dogs, they got a lot of people to come to these little satellite churches in these little villages, meet the pastor, actually see where the church is, and so there's going to be so much ministry that happens even after they're gone. So just thank you for praying for them. Thank you for giving. I know a lot of you gave uh, through the auction and other means. Just thank you for that. Really appreciate it. Um, 
this past year, a small group of us had a preaching intensive with Pastor Matt, and it was designed to raise up lay people that would be able to bring the word in confidence and knowledge when needed. Uh, Will Hodge was part of that group, and we are excited to have him bring the word of God to us this morning. Uh, Will and Rochelle uh, have two children, Nora and Maggie. Rochelle grew up in the church, and Will has led life groups for many years. Um, Will has a great knowledge of the word and wisdom in the way he shares it, and I'm excited to hear what the Holy Spirit has laid on his heart as we continue our study in Romans. So give him some grace as he fills in for Pastor Matt, who will be back next week. Well, thank you, Bill. As mo for those who are wondering who that lady Rochelle is that they're talking about, she's that beautiful lady sitting right there who Matt occasionally picks on with stories from youth and missions trips from years past. And we're usually the ones laughing at his TV and movie references during second service. Now, some of you might be more familiar with seeing me chase down my daughters Nora and Maggie after service. But as far as why I'm standing before you today, Aside from the very obvious reason that Matt is still on vacation, I really can claim no special merit or expertise other than that I am a sinner saved by grace, called to serve my Lord Jesus, even if that means getting up in front of the congregation while being thoroughly uncomfortable with public speaking. <laughs> now on the subject both of my daughters and doing things we're really not comfortable with, one of the absolute joys that I've found in parenting is how it helps to understand God's relationship with us through the lens of our relationship with our children. One such occasion that Rochelle has given me permission to share happened just this summer. Now I feel like I need to provide you with just a little bit of context that our girls are not even eight years old yet, but from a young age we've drilled into their heads some essential safety practices for crossing the street. Now I say essential in quotes because bottom line, there's really only one truly essential thing when crossing the street. Does anyone want to guess what that is? Yeah, to make it across the street safely, which mainly boils down to just not getting hit by a car. Now in service to that essential goal, we've taught them some pretty standard stuff. Look both ways before crossing the street, walk, do not run, when crossing and walk directly across the street. No stopping in the street and no diagonals. That's one of my personal pet peeves. And stay in contact with your group while you're crossing, such as holding hands. And of course, do not cross the street if a car is coming. Pretty basic stuff, right? Now, flash forward just a couple years to this summer, after years of repetition of these same rules, when Rochelle is walking the girls to a friend's house a couple blocks away. As the time arrives to cross the street on this nice, slow, no outlet street in the back of the development with beautiful, clear visibility in all directions, there happens to be a local car approaching. As most of us would do, seeing children preparing to cross the street, the driver comes to a stop and waves the pedestrians on. Naturally, Rochelle tells the girl to cross the street and goes across, waving, of course, a thanks to the polite driver, only to find a almost upon arrival, that one of our girls is not with her, having stayed on the sidewalk. 
My wife, of course, calls over to her for her to cross the street, only to be met with resistance and fear about the car in the road, because, of course, one does not cross the street while a car is coming. So, as this exchange continues, despite her mother's assurances that it will be all right and to please do as she says and cross right now, we instead have a child getting increasingly upset and distraught while staying on the sidewalk, a mother being blessed with the opportunity to grow in patience, and some poor driver who just wants to make it the last few feet to their driveway, but instead is being treated to a front row seat to our personal family drama. And the story, of course, has a happy ending. Eventually, everyone made it where they were going. No one was hurt, and the children got to enter into the joy of playing at their friend's house that awaited them at the end of this arduous journey in spite of its trials and discomforts. It also became eminently clear that for all that I had done to teach my girls the rules of crossing the street, I had failed to communicate the most essential truth, namely, that you can trust your parents, and when your parents call for you to do something, you do it, no matter how far outside your comfort zone it takes you. Which again, brings me to standing well outside of my personal comfort zone under these lights that are remarkably hot for LEDs, but I'm also excited to get to share with you some insights from the Book of Romans. Now, can I just sidebar for a moment here and ask you all, has anyone else found this to be just an amazing and enriching series about the beauty and magnificence of the gospel? Yeah. I'm going to brag on Matt a little bit since, frankly, he's not here to stop me. Specifically, that whether it's making clear how simple the task before us of sharing the gospel is, or his hair clippings sprinkled like Parmesan cheese, all over somebody's food, illustration of the sheer nonsense of any sort of works-based salvation. I'm very grateful for this series, most especially because sometimes when something becomes very familiar to us, it can become easy to lose sight of how amazing and wonderful it is. If I'm being completely honest with you, Romans as a whole had lost some of that luster for me, establishing itself in my mind as Mr. Bond was talking about, as the source of core doctrine and an explanation of the foundational truths of our faith. Yet with the Spirit-led teaching in this series, the dust has been blown off of this book for me personally, and I'm not afraid to say that two of these lessons have been easily among the top five sermons I've heard in this building period. So too, when Matt asked me to preach on the back half of Romans chapter 4, I was at first inclined to immediately default to simple familiarity, and oh, what a grave mistake that would have been. The story of Abraham that Paul employs to illustrate both the absolute importance of faith as well as the total sufficiency of faith is one that many of us have heard so many times that it's very easy to just acknowledge the major story points and move on. Indeed, Mr. Bond, whom we were privileged to hear from last week, did an excellent job of highlighting some of the great things that Father Abraham is known for that established him as the man, the foremost patriarch, revered first among them, the man who our Lord God himself would expressly identify with when in multiple places in the Bible, 
God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Abraham, the man whose name Jesus himself attaches to the rest and reward of the righteous after death when he speaks of Lazarus going to Abraham's bosom, or as alternately translated, Abraham's side, or the arms of Abraham. Now this section here in the latter half of chapter 4 talks a lot more about Abraham. Let's take a look at it together as recorded in the ESV, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why the faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And it's a long section of verses. Now all this about Abraham is set up as a logical proof of why only faith will be sufficient for our salvation and why it cannot be keeping the law or good deeds or anything that depends on our works that can make us the inheritors of God's promises. And let me tell you, looking at the kind of man Abraham was, this is what truly distinguishes why the gospel is such truly good, good, good news. It's my hope to share with you today how absolutely profound the story of Abraham is as far as what it means for our lives today. Now, starting right here in this passage, most people in this room probably fall into one of two camps when they read verses 19 through 22 of chapter 4. Let's look at those verses again together. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, of those two camps I referred to reading this passage, the first camp would be those who read this and say, oh, great, he stayed faithful throughout, he never wavered, the Bible says it, so it is, of course it's true. And of course it is true. But then there's the second camp, 
which I myself fall into, who struggle with the passage just a little bit. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Hold up. Wait just a second. Pause. Show of hands. Who here remembers what happens right after Abraham first expresses doubts to the Lord concerning God's first statement of his having many descendants when God doubles down on his promises? Anyone remember what happens next? Yeah. And yes, I know at this point also he's still Abram and his wife is still Sarai, but for simplicity, I'm going to stick with Abraham and Sarah today. But right after the promise is reiterated to him, and we won't be putting this up on the screen in order to keep everything PG, but the adults in the room are welcome to follow along in Genesis chapter 16. How right after this promise, we have those events in which things get messy. Precisely because of Sarah's doubts and Abraham going right along with her plan, a plan born of doubt and worldly sensibility, it soon comes to be that Abraham is set to have a child with Sarah's servant, Hagar. And then, things go from messy to downright ugly. Really ugly. Hagar gets a little bit contemptuous with Sarah, and then Sarah turns to Abraham and gives him an earful about how it's all his fault for doing exactly what she told him to do. And I'm sure no exchange like that has ever happened in the history of the world since then. But now remember, Abraham is the man, the greatest of all the patriarchs. So one would naturally assume that he would take responsibility for his actions. And as head of his household, he would ensure that everyone is afforded their proper value and respect and dignity as human beings with a peaceful resolution for his household. Or, instead, he'll just pass the buck. He tells Sarah to do whatever she wants to the woman pregnant with his very first child. And Sarah then goes on to abuse her to such a degree that Hagar was forced to flee. Gross. Yuck. This is probably some of the most vile conduct we've seen spelled out from individuals within the genealogies since Cain murdered his brother. And all done by... Father Abraham. And you know what? This actually does have some steep competition for vile conduct. But not from other people earlier in the genealogy of Jesus, but from Abraham again, earlier in his life. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 through 13, we have the account of how, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will see, they will say, this is his wife? Then they'll kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Wow. For those of you who might, who might have thought it was a little bit unfair of Sarah to chew him out for following her plan, this does provide some interesting context of exactly the kind of nonsense she'd been having to put up with following him from land to land for a couple decades at this point. In fact, in this section, Pharaoh, Pharaoh of all people, seems to be the only person acting with any integrity when he calls Abraham out in verses 18 through 20. When Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? 
Why did you tell me that she, didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Again, gross. And that, my friends, best beloved, is why the gospel is such good, good news. And why the story of Abraham is so perfect a vehicle to convey that. Wait, what? Huh? How exactly does Abraham go from being one of the ugliest characters in the Bible to being the man, the greatest among the patriarchs, the man whose offspring are guaranteed these magnificent promises of God? There was almost nothing righteous about this man, almost nothing virtuous. The two things, the only things that Abraham had going for him were his belief in the promises of God, and his faith to step out and do what he was called to do. Going back still farther to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have the call of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And you know what? He went. He believed. He obeyed. And when God called him to step out in faith, he did just that. He left his country. He left his kindred. He left his father. He left safety and security and comfort. And he went where God told him to go. When there was famine, he could have gone home, but instead he continued to walk in faith, going instead to places where he feared for his life. When the last of his direct family, his nephew Lot, parted ways with him, he continued on the path the Lord had set before him. When he had no family left, such that it was just Eliezer of Damascus who would be his heir, and oh, who would want Eliezer to be their heir? Even when he had those moments of unbelief that he, he would not let his faith waver, he continued to put his trust in the Lord rather than returning home to safety, security, and family. Faith. Bottom line, when God says to move, you move. Did Abraham do things perfectly? No. No, he was so ridiculously far from perfect that he is ironically the perfect example of why, as Paul says here in Romans 4, salvation has to depend on faith. Because if the law brings wrath, was Abraham deserving of wrath? I ask you, did he deserve wrath? Absolutely he was. If adherence to the moral principles God has written on the hearts of every human was what determined his fate, Abraham would be toast. But rather than wrath, the promises of the Lord depend on faith, on putting our whole trust in the Lord and doing as he calls us to do. The promise rests on grace, the absolutely unmerited favor we receive not for our own good works, but because we are justified through the finished and perfect work of Jesus if we believe and put our trust in his resurrection. 
But what does faith actually look like? For Abraham, he might have believed in God's promises, but lacking faith stayed with his father, his kin, and his country. Now this is an aside, because this is not in the Bible. I have no idea if God chose to call anyone before Abraham, but if he did, clearly they didn't answer because we did not hear about it. We know that he, Abraham, had faith because we can see that he trusted and obeyed the Lord enough to do what he said. As I was privileged to share with the youth some weeks back from James concerning this very topic, from chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now again, there is absolutely nothing any of us here can do to earn our salvation. All of our best works are as filthy rags, or as hair-covered cuisine, as Matt so beautifully illustrated. Being presented to the only truly good and righteous judge. But if Jesus truly is our Lord, if we confess with our mouths that he is Lord, our Lord gets to tell us what to do. And if we truly believe in his promises, if we have faith, we're going to step out there and at least try to accomplish his will. And frankly, we're not going to get it right all the time. We're going to mess things up. Looking back at my life, there are a litany of things that sometimes I still lose sleep over for getting so, so wrong. Thankfully, though, we have the amazing example of Father Abraham. Very few of us will ever get it as wrong as telling my wife to go pretend that you're just my sister so they're nice to me, and, you know, whatever happens to you happens. Very few of us will ever get things as wrong as the whole situation with Sarah and Hagar that caused so much pain and suffering. Yet despite all that, by being willing to step out in faith, being willing to put his trust in the Lord, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so too, as Paul says, those words were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Now I need to be honest with you, as I mentioned before, I'm deeply outside my comfort zone being up on this stage. If I have to be in this room, I'd rather be sitting in one of those seats over there and not under these lights. But I was called to serve today in this capacity, so I'm stepping out in faith and up here despite my insecurities about how unfit, physically or otherwise, I might feel to be up here. If I'm being really honest with you, most Sunday mornings, I'd rather be either in bed or playing video games. But I know, I believe that we're called by our Lord not to forsake gathering together and in stepping out regularly in faith to come here, I find so, so much more joy in God's goodness and grace and blessings than I ever would in any mere carnal pleasure. If we're talking about being uncomfortable, several of our church family, as Bill mentioned, just returned from giving up a week of their vacation in Mexico in July. Temperatures in the 90s and humid as can be. 
with three days total of travel just to get there and back, walking to houses bearing witchcraft symbols to invite them to church, performing hard physical labor, again in 90 degree heat, to help contribute to the greater glory of God. As some of the other people hosting neighborhood vacation Bible schools can attest, opening up our homes and being the weird people, inviting their neighbor's kids over to talk about Jesus is wildly, completely outside our comfort zone. But our Lord said to make disciples, so we're going to try to figure out how to honor his command. We're going to get some things wrong, probably a lot of things wrong. I very sincerely hope that we're not going to get anything nearly as wrong as Abraham, especially with VBS. But that doesn't matter, because the Lord said to go outside our comfort zone, so we're going. In hope, we believe against hope that we'll be able to shine Jesus' light in our neighborhood so that others can know this good, good, good news. So I would ask you, what is the Lord calling you to do? I know for some of you, just being here in these seats is probably outside your comfort zone. And I wholeheartedly, sincerely applaud your faith in coming here today. Some people sitting here or listening to this may not believe at all. And the call is very simple and explicit as given by Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you don't know that rest and joy and peace and purpose, ask one of the weirdos here in this church. They'll love to tell you. Bottom line is everyone is going to serve some kind of master, knowingly or not, even if that's simply one's own pride. How much better to serve one truly worthy to be called Lord? For several of you, though, we see the amazing things you do, the way you serve faithfully and selflessly, and I want to assure you that we see you and are so thankful for the example of your faith. For many people in this room, though, there's probably something that you're being called to do that you may have doubt or hesitation about. It might be signing up for growth track, might be joining a small group, what about starting that conversation about Jesus with a friend that you don't feel remotely qualified to have? Maybe some are being called to lead a small group. Ooh, or what about worshiping the Lord with a portion of the bounty he's provided you with, as Abraham did? Did he really just sneak in the bit about Abraham doing a tithe? Yes, I did. Sorry, not sorry. Or even taking the next step in following Jesus through baptism. There's probably something uncomfortable you'd rather not do, but are being called to do anyway. For those of you who, much like me, may be worried that you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, or doggone it, people don't like you enough to accomplish something God is calling you to do, and thank you for the people who've caught that, I want to leave you with one more example from the life of Abraham. Now, I'm going to have to beg Matt's forgiveness since he only wanted me doing a shallow dive on Abraham, but ended up covering almost all of it. In chapter 15, there's this kind of confusing scene where God is establishing his covenant with Abraham concerning all these blessings. Now, a covenant is just a fancy word for a contract, a binding agreement between two parties to do specific things for one another. This particular covenant was being established 
by cutting animals in half, forming a path, and each walking between them to signify the consequences of breaking this covenant being the same death that befell the animals. But God actually put Abraham to sleep after the passageway was made. And then God himself, he passed through twice as a burning fire pot and a flaming torch, signifying that it's not up to Abraham for this covenant to be kept. God himself would ensure that his promises were met and that his will would be done. In short, if you're concerned that you may not be up to the task, frankly, it's not about you. God's calling for your life, it's not about you. The reason God gave to Abraham when he first called him out of Haran, the reason underscoring every promise he made to him is so that you will be a blessing. It's not about you. You know what? Thankfully, it's not up to you for God's plans to succeed. It's not up to you. Just as God provided the first sacrifice to make clothes to cover up Adam and Eve's shame and humiliation, as well as God's providing the final sacrifice that was ever needed of his precious son, Jesus, delivered up for our trespasses, God will not let something so precious and vital as his will depend on your ability. It's not up to you. God's calling, though, as well as his promises, is, however, for you. He invites and calls you to participate in his good, good work of sharing the gospel, and he invites you to share in the blessing, the inheritance of Abraham that absolutely cannot be earned through the law or any works of righteousness. But if you're willing to step out in faith, it can be counted to you as righteousness, all to God's glory. So again, I ask one more time, what is God calling you to? If you think you know today, if you think maybe you hear that still small voice, if you've got some notion to do something that seems absurd or impossible, or something that just goes against your desire to be comfortable, I implore you, tell someone before you leave this building today. Tell someone. Thank you. Well, Heavenly Father, I don't know who is here today and who needs to hear this, who you are calling to or what you're calling them to, but I know there's somebody. Again, give them the faith of Abraham. Strengthen them. They believe. Help their unbelief. Whatever you may be calling us to, Give us the courage to simply obey and so to be able to enter into your joy and participate in your good works. In your son Jesus' most holy name I pray this. Amen. Twill. Whoops. <laughs> Hi there, everybody. Uh, thanks so much, Will. Can we give Will a hand? It's awesome to have an example of someone obeying God's call on their life, right? And sharing with us from God's word about, you know, someone who is usually thought of as like this awesome, you know, great follower of God, man of God, who actually, you know, did some messed up stuff like we do. Um, so I encourage you with what Will was encouraging you with uh, to ask God what he's calling you to. 
uh, and then share that with someone else for accountability. So thanks so much for coming out to our service today. We would love to have you back next week as we continue to explore Romans. But for now, God bless. Have a great week.